You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Jamie Lemke. I'm a Senior Research Fellow and Associate Director of Academic and Student Programs at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm here with Pete Betke, a Professor of Economics and Philosophy at George Mason University, also the Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and Vice President for Research at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His most recent book is Living Economics, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And we're here right now to have a conversation about the inspirations and the influences of the F.A. Hayek program. Yeah. Um, so you and your research and a lot of the people you work with, um, they draw from Austrian economics, from Virginia political economy and public choice, and also from Bloomington institutional analysis, which is also heavily rooted in public choice. Right. Um, why these three? Why well, do you pick these three as the foundation? So there's two different ways to tackle an answer to that question. Um, the first one is to recognize a point that Hayek made, which the other thinkers also share in common. Hayek uh, argued in an essay in the 1950s that nobody can be as dangerous as an economist who only knows economics. I like to add a caveat to that, which is that nobody's as dangerous an economist who's only an economist, except perhaps a moral philosopher who knows no economics at all. They can do a hell of a lot of damage. But um, this idea of the interdisciplinary nature that economics is always, as the study of economics is embedded in philosophy and in politics. Buchanan, when he started the Thomas Jefferson Center, uh, for studies in political economy, which eventually became the Public Choice Center and then the foundation of public choice. He argues that the task of political economists is not limited to the study of the technical principles of economics that are necessary in order to study comparative institutional arrangements. That is key. But he says the political economist then takes the next step as well and, un and examines the underlying philosophical uh, positions of people that, and also the philosophical positions that are implied in all statements about um, how to have the appropriate role of government or improvements in the role of government. And, the, and Vincent Ostrom as well sort of talked about this relationship between philosophy, politics, economics, and what is the underlying structure to make um, the uh, self-governing democratic social orders. But what was common among all of those various people was an approach set in motion by um, Carl uh, Menger, Carl Menger, that uh, is methodological individualism. That um, and the focus is on the individual and the decisions that the individual is not a maximizing agent per se, um, as one caricature has it. You know. Uh, Veblen used to say that uh, in standard economics, the utility maximizer is like a uh, lightning calculator of pleasure and pain. But, but Veblen himself understood that Menger didn't make that same error. And that was what unites the Bloomington School, the Public Choice School, and the, and the um, Austrian School in this regard. It's all versions of methodological individualist social science. The second one is a focus on processes of adjustment, continual processes of adjustment, because all three of those schools made it their core to deny the assumptions of omniscience and the assumptions of benevolence in terms of economic 
actors and public actors. So they wanted to look and see in which the institutional environment impacts the way that these individuals make their choices and interact with one another. So we're gonna so that's so we have methodological individualism. We have that methodological individualist not imbued with cognitive capacities that minimize differences in institutional frames, but instead that institutional frames are important for dictating the way that individuals. So this is what Vernon Smith later on referred to as what he called ecological rationality. It's an idea he gets from the cognitive theorist uh, Gerd Gigerinzer. And Gigerinzer builds on Simon, Herbert Simon, and he refers to the Simon scissors, which is that human decision-making is a function of our cognitive capacity and our circumstances within which our choice. And so it's that. So that's the way that we translate that into this uh, framework is that it's institutions then that, what that does is it creates the context within which the individual makes a choice. And that contextual nature of our choices influences the type of incentives that we face and the type of information that we process in making our choices. So context matters. You'll hear that in Buchanan and Tulloch. You'll hear that in Lynn and Vincent. And its origin is in Mises and Hayek. And so, you know, so Mises, as early as 1920 is in the socialism, the, the economics, uh, economic calculation of the socialist commonwealth, is arguing this context matters point. And of course, it becomes famous in Hayek's use of knowledge in society when he says that, you know, it's the knowledge of time and place, right, which is this context. So one way to think about what happened is, so Mises and Hayek set this foundation in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and then in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the Ostroms and in the in the Bloomington School and the Buchanan and Tulloch in the Virginia School sort of took those ideas and developed them in political science, all right, and in their own sort of respective ways. And so what we're trying to do again is reintegrate these projects um, in our own work here at, at George Mason, and that's um, you know that's kind of what we're doing. So another way to think about this is that. A lot of social science has this invisible hand proposition, okay? And then you have, or a visible hand theorem um, about the self-correcting mechanisms of social order of the market. And then a, a lot of economists work from a postulate of a rational choice postulate. So we have this rational choice postulate. And what you do is you, how do I derive, the question intellectually is, how do I derive the invisible hand theorem from the rational choice postulate? And most standard ways to do that, to derive that theorem, is to imbue in the rational choosers very strong cognitive capabilities and to put them in an environment which is very frictionless, right? So you have a frictionless environment with cognitively superhuman agents. And then what happens is the rational chooser postulate falls into the invisible hand theorem almost as a matter of like just bibbling and scribbling. Boom, there you are. And then you can critique the world by saying that if I can show that agents are less than perfectly rational or the environment is less than perfectly frictionless, then I'm not going to get the invisible hand theorem and therefore I need the government to step in and do things. Well, what we do and what 
the various schools of thought, the Austrians, the Bloomington School, and the Virginia School did, was they didn't permit that kind of step. They wanted to study the invisible hand theorem, invisible hand processes in the social order. They wanted to start from a methodological individualist point of view or a rational choice modeler, but they didn't want to imbue cognitive capabilities of a superhuman. They wanted to deal with men, sometimes smart, sometimes stupid, sometimes good, oftentimes bad. What are the incentives that they face? And then what they say is they derive the invisible hand theorem from the rational choice postulate via institutional analysis. So the one thing that's common, again, among all three of them is a focus on the, what, what Buchanan would call later the rules level of analysis, right? So the nature of the game is always a function of the rules that we're following. And so this is the informal and formal rules and their enforcement are going to dictate whether or not you're going to be able to derive the invisible hand theorem from the rational choice agent. So if there's a problem in that, it's, it, you find it in the rules. So Buchanan summarized this in a very nice little way. He said, same players, different rules produce different politics. Mm -hmm. Right? So the focus isn't on different players. We assume something about the same in the players, what they call the assumption of behavioral symmetry. But then all the explanatory focus is on the institutions. So you have behavioral symmetry, but then you vary the institutions, and then you get different outcomes because of the institutions. So you focus on that. So again, in, in our research, our research empirical element is to dig deep into the institutional environment because that's where the explanation for different levels of performance is going to be. So, yeah. It's inter so you have this idea that um, many of the systems that emerge, market exchange being the first example, is highlighted in the 18th century as something that can result without deliberate conscious action, that it can emerge from individual self-interested actions, as Adam Ferguson, Adam Smith. Yeah. And, and then you have all of these different uh, disciplines and sub-disciplines within the social science trying to address this question in the in their own way um, and so you highlighted this institutional focus as one of the things that's unique about um, Bloomington and, and public choice and about our program but a lot of disciplines have an institutional focus and they certainly you know view themselves as centered around institutions even the initial early institutionalist yep. that the Austrian school comes up to, to fight against. But there's something very different about yeah. what they mean when they say that the institutions matter and that they are important. So what's, what's the rub there? I think it's the interaction between the rational choice model and the agents and the institutional environment. So if you think about, you know, what I said before about Simon's scissors you know it's this idea of that there you need to have the cognitive capacity of the individuals and the institutional circumstances rather than just to focus on the institutional circumstances then that sort of leads to a world where i just study the institutions and i don't really have a a theory about what's going on with them and so hayek for example says in the counter-revolution that if social orders exhibited uh nothing but the intentions of the actors involved there'd be no need for a theoretical explanation, right? And so our desire to have a theory is precisely because there's this disjoint between the intentions and the outcomes. And so we have to explain both the reasons when the outcomes are good, right? 
or when they're bad. So, you know, we have these invisible hand processes, but then we also have the path to hell is paved with good intentions kind of idea. And so you have this other kind of thing. So I would say that's like the road to serfdom. The way Hayek tells the story in the road to serfdom isn't, hey, the bastards got in control and they did bastardly things. It's, hey, these are great dreams that people have and they come crashing down into this horrible sort of, and he wants to explain the explanation isn't the conclusion, it's the process that makes the conclusion possible. And so again, that puts an emphasis on this processes, right, and, and all of that focus. So institutions, processes, and if you look at like what the Ostroms were up to, or what Buchanan and Tulloch were up to, or what Mises and Hayek were up to, again, what you find is a focus on activity, processes unfolding over time, not statements about what would happen at any given point in time and efficiency properties of that. So again, that makes them different as social scientists, and we're trying to sort of unite that. And, uh, you know, we, we put this under the catchphrase of the Austrian school, the Bloomington school, the Virginia school. The reality is, is that, you know, we're all here. Uh, we, we live in, we teach in Virginia. So in some sense, we're the heir apparents of the Virginia school, right? But our foundation of our research group is in the Austrian school. But it's not in the ideas of, it's not in the personalities of any one of those actors. It's in their ideas. So Austrian school is just a placeholder for a focus on methodological individualism, entrepreneurship, market process. Okay? Uh, Bloomington is a, a placeholder for institutional analysis of development which is a focus on action arenas, rules in use, rather than rules in form. And Virginia political economy or public choice is, again, like a placeholder for a focus on things like the rule level of analysis, or what you can call the constitutional level of analysis, and strategies within any given set of rules. And then what we're trying to do is interact all three of those in a more consistent way than had previously be do been done. And so that's where it's in that mixing or conciliation of issues of property rights economics, law and economics, new institutional economics, Austrian economics, public choice economics. It's in that mixture that and, and where we're finding our great sort of opportunity to grow our school of thought, our school of thought, not some older school of thought, but our new, our contemporary research program. So we've, we've taken this sort of three-pronged theoretical approach of institutions, political structures, entrepreneurship, and, and market processes, and applied that in a variety of different areas to try to make sense of some of the, you know, very big uh, tran transitions. And um, I like to point out a lot of times with regard to two of my students who I'm now very fortunate to have as colleagues after they left and then came back because they've had good careers, Pete Leeson and, and Chris Coyne, is that I like to say Pete's book on pirates, okay, The Invisible Hook, shows to people how entertaining economics can actually be. 
it's illuminating. It illuminates these practices, but it's it's a subject matter which everyone could read and, and find fascinating. Like, all right, there's, you know, what were these pirates doing, you know, and when they were going out to, you know, uh, sort of uh, do their rogue type things, how were they self-policing? How were they organized? What was the honor among thieves kind of thing? So Pete uses economics and illustrates the beauty of the economic way of thinking in a very entertaining and fun-loving way, and you could read it and enjoy it. And then my my other colleague, Chris Coyne, he writes a book about after war. And that shows the seriousness of economics. I mean, we're dealing with life and death situations, right? Trillions, not billions, trillions of dollars have been wasted, all right? Thousands, perhaps millions of lives have been lost, all in this effort to try to socially construct through military-led efforts at reconstructing and failed and weak states. And three-quarters of them have failed, right? In fact, and, and what Chris shows in his work is that let's take a really, really sort of base-level idea. We want to look and see whether or not these countries that we've been involved in and trying to help reconstruct and become democracies can get to look like modern-day Iran, Iraq, so, Iran, Iran, modern-day Iran, a four on the polity index. This is really, really low in terms of, we're not asking them to be Great Britain. We're asking them, can they get to be the level of Iran? 75% of them fail. Trillions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives, perhaps millions of lives lost because we didn't follow sort of basic economics. Chris identifies that. So what you have is you have economics as wildly entertaining and as soberly, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, urgent for us to learn its lesson. And that comes out of our research program. And so to me, I think that we have, you know, this very, very fruitful research program. Our output sort of reflects that, I think. Um, we're constantly debating ideas with one another. It's a fantastic environment to work in. Um, and we have that shared purpose. And hopefully that's, you know, what the Hayek program will sort of, you know, reflect for, you know, years to come in terms of the kind of work that we're trying to do. Yeah, it's interesting the commonalities that emerge as you're describing this because as a social scientist, you have to make this decision, what is it that I'm studying? So what is the nature of the human actor and also what is the nature of the world? So one common characteristic of all three of these, Austrian public choice Bloomington, is that the rational actor, you might say, is much more complex and nuanced in these schools than it is if you're doing a more narrow homo economicus. So there's right. still an internal logic, yeah. but it's a more complex human being. And also the world, you allow for a more complex world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, li I like to think of it as that you have a logic of choice and a logic of a situation, right? So you, ha you, know, so you have this kind of you know, logic uh, you know, that, that, that we apply of the individual choice problem. And then you also have this logic of you know, the situation in which they find themselves, which includes like the logic of an organization. So you know, why the worst get on top? It's not just some random idea. There's a logic behind why Hayek claims why the worst would get up to on top in a situation that socialism demands because of what's expected of the agent. So it's just a law of comparative advantage applied to that kind of world. But I was just gonna, I was thinking as we were talking, I mean, think about your own work on the rise of women's rights in the 19th century in America, right? So if I have a theory or an intellectual apparatus that basically says change doesn't happen because whatever is is the best arrangement that we currently have, all we're left with in social sciences is change never happens until it does. 
right? So, you know, I, you know my, my, uh, I was out in Portland with my, my sister this summer and my, uh, her grandson, uh, little Kit Owen, he fell and scraped his face and his knee and everything. He was crying. And so, you know, they, they cleaned them all up and then they were trying to calm him down. And they said, you know, Owen, sometimes things happen. You're know, like that. He's only two. And after that, like you'd say to him, are you doing okay, Owen? He'd go, it happens. I think this is like when they're sitting there, you know, and all of a sudden you say like communism collapse. It happens. You know, the financial crisis, it happens. But they don't have any explanation because their intellectual apparatus isn't meant to do that. It automatically they, rules out any question that could yeah, be Yeah, until it happens. And then now all of a sudden I have to explain the new equilibrium. So here I am trying to explain the rise of female rights in the 19th century. And, you know, the current arrangement has to be the best arrangement that's possible. Otherwise, a lower cost alternative would have existed. And then all of a sudden you get this change and you're like, okay, well, then it changed. We want to study the processes by which that chain comes about, which includes, by the way, ideologies, right? You know, people actually coming up with an idea and saying, hey, it might be better if we recognize the rights of these individuals, because that might actually, you know, make them want to live here or, or other kinds of reasons, right? And, and so all of a sudden now, you know, the agent himself, so yes, it's true that our agents are more complicated, have multiple, you know, arguments in their utility function, you might say, but they're also craftier, right? They're, they're more creative. The agents over there aren't creative. They're, they're reactors in some sense, right? They're not, you know, Buchanan used to say when I was a student of his, he used to quote this line. Um, he, he liked to read a lot of existential literature. He, he was an English major. I don't know how many people would know that, but as an undergraduate, he was studied English. Um, and then it was a master's student. He did economics. And then, of course, his PhD is in economics. But, um, but he loved existentialists like Sartre and, and uh, Camus and all these people like that. And so one of the things in class when he would come around, he would always say to us, he'd say, baboons build their own cages now, don't they? Right? That's like we build the rules under which we live. The Ostrom's constantly quoted from Federalist Number 1, where Hamilton says, it's up to this generation to determine whether or not, you know, we're going to live under constitutions that are a consequence of accident and force or of choice and reflection. They choose choice and reflection. Buchanan chooses a choice and reflection. Oh, well, how do I fit that with Hayek and, you know, spontaneous order and all of that? So a lot of people always think Hayek just sort of says, you know, in his own version, it happens, you know, kind of thing. But that's actually not, you know, Hayek's position. Hayek's position is about codification of evolution of laws. I mean, he wrote, a, he wrote, you know, a book called The Constitution of Liberty. He's trying to explain to you what are the rules of a society. Now, he does recognize that the creative, uh, creative forces of, of a free civilization are what we want to make room for. And, and so, but how do I pare down the rules under which we live to allow for the number of accidents that could happen? That, again, fits with what Buchanan and, and, and Ostrom are trying to write about. And so, you know, we sort of see this as all part of, like, we're trying to explain a process of change over time versus the efficiency of the, of activities any slice in time. And I think that that like, means that we're going to be on that side of the triangle. If we ask questions which are appropriate for what is the efficient position at this point in time, then we'd use those tools, right? Because that would make sense. Why would I like, deny that, those, that there's good tools over there, right? So, right? But those aren't the questions that we have a comparative advantage in asking or that we consider to be the important questions in the social sciences. And that, that is where we differ. Right. And so we're we're pushing on the methodological front, on an analytical front, 
and on a practical policy front because we're trying to get economists to see and other social scientists to see that the questions that we want to ask are valuable and the way we approach it are scientifically viable. And that cuts against a lot of prejudices, but it it gives us a lot of fun and a lot of work to do and, you know, a shared purpose among our research group. And it's just, it's great. Yeah. So speaking of fun and work to do, um, let's turn an eye to the future, not in a predictive sense, of course, yeah. but in a, if you're thinking about people who are young scholars, who are considering becoming young scholars, what kind of research agendas do you see as really important for people working in these traditions to pick up? Or what kind of research agendas can these traditions inform? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I do think that the problems of transition societies are still at the fr forefront. So it's been 25 years since the collapse of communism. Um, and so, you know, we, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. But we're going to have to learn those lessons and apply them to places like Cuba, Venezuela, uh, you, know, uh, you know, some other, uh, Brazil is going to go through changes. And there's still, of course, lingering problems in East and Central Europe. You know, I think look out the window and your natural curiosity should be your guide. You know, there's the problems right now with migration. How does one handle that in a self-governing democracy? Um, you know, these kind of questions, right? But so I, I think that those issues are going to be on the forefront, and I think that people should still be encouraged to think about those things. China is still a long way off from figuring it out. Obviously, the, the financial crisis and its aftermath is still on the front of a lot of people's minds and what are. And what happens when work disappears? Um, I think this is part of our urban plight problem is that we have, in fact, uh, raised the costs of businesses hiring workers and lowered the costs of workers being unemployed. And that then generates a kind of permanent uh, class of unemployable people. And that creates social tensions, which we have to deal with. But I think one of the things we miss out on that, which is a more philosophical question, is the dignity that we afford to work. What does that do for people's self-esteem, for self-worth kind of ideas, how does that affect their notion of themselves and those around them? Um, so it's not only responsibility issues, it's also actually internally, you know, what does that mean? A large part of my life, not all of it, I have a wife and two kids that I love dearly and, and everything like that, but a large part of my, wife, my life and my identity is worked up in what I would call quote unquote work, but I don't even think I work because it's just what I do, it's, it's who I am. And I, I pinch myself because I go to, go to work every day doing the thing that I love doing. You know, don't tell anyone, but I would do it for free if, you know, they, you know, because I just, I love doing it. And I think that that's something very unique in human history, right? That, that's just fairly new, right? And, and we've made it so that we could, ex we're at a, such a level of wealth in the Western democracies that we've actually expanded that. So a lot of people can do that, not just, you know, the elite of the elite or something like that. So, but yet it's not true for everyone. Right. And so how do they find meaning in their work? You know, and these kind of questions, I think these are open ended questions. I think young people. So I think you start with a very, very practical question. All right. Why such urban plight? And then what you do is you focus on, OK, so why is, you know, capital and labor not adjusting to be able to 
get rid of that urban plight in the Western democracies. And then we look at like, what are those restrictions and the rules of the game that actually are making it such? And then you start asking, what are the consequences of when we eliminate the bottom of that economic ladder? Doesn't matter if we're eliminating the bottom of that economic ladder in Indonesia or in Chicago or in Baltimore, right? But if you eliminate the bottom of that economic ladder, people that are at the beginning of their economic climb can't climb. The ladder's too high up and they keep missing it. And then what does that mean for the way that, that we understand our social order and the way they, their tacit presuppositions about political economy? Because they're on the short end of a stick. They're trying to reach up and they have no alternative use. And then you have this you know, system of, uh, so the war on drugs is going to be an important topic. The militarization of police, the loss of our domestic economic freedoms caused by our foreign interventions of, abroad, the inter interrelationship between those things. All of those topics are very live topics, very important topics. Again, as I said before, our group is really <laughs> fascinated by this notion that economics can be wildly entertaining. Wildly entertaining. When I teach economics, principles of economics, I try to find as many wildly entertaining examples as possible. Okay? Um, and yet, at the same time, I understand that economics can be deadly serious. And so, as a group, we want to analyze both of those things. And in order to do that, I think what's most fascinating is the scene in the play, the economic forces at work, the way in which economic activity unfolds over time rather than at any one slice in time, the way in which ideas. So I, I have this big, you know, sort of, it's a very simple idea. It's a linear relationship between ideas, institutions, economic performance. But then it gets complicated because then there's all these various sub-themes off of that. So the reason why institutions matter is because they structure our incentives and they control the flow and feedback mechanisms in our information, right? Ideas matter. Well, what does that mean? That means anywhere from notions about grand ideology to our own eschatology to, you know, our, our sort of mythologies and folk, folk wisdoms that we have. And then we have well-being, which comes out of performance. What does it mean to actually live a flourishing human life? What, what, uh, you know, and then there's some kind of connection between all of these projects. So a very simple linear argument, which is that ideas generate legitimate institutions, institutions determine economic performance, becomes a big research program which you have to constantly discipline yourself not to say like, I have a theory of everything or whatever, right? And so you have to kind of learn how to hone in and focus on these projects. But as soon as you, the fascinating thing about lifelong learning and the adventure that economics affords us, you know, is that it's a simple truism of learning, which is that the more you know, the more you know you don't know. So it's like a sphere, right? And this is the questions that we can answer. As we answer more, the questions on the outside of that sphere become bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's fascinating. I mean, it's like, you know, you stay extremely young. So like, you know, we, we're in this new situation. I told my wife last week, I, I you know, I feel like I'm you know, in my 20s again and just starting my career and, you know, so excited and I'm mid-career now and I can't wait to learn like the next thing from the young people coming up and pushing against the ideas that we have. And I think as long as we all maintain that environment, we all will remain young and, and vibrant and excited about things. And I think we see that in, in our colleagues from, you know, our youngest colleagues to our, our more senior colleagues. So, yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you for coming in and talking today, Pete. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, 
visit ppe.mercatus.org.